0: From the Impact Pastor today we're picking up where I left off in the book of Amos. So if you'll turn in your in your Bibles back into the Old Testament, you're going to have to search and search to be able to find that little little book. Now those of you, if I were to ask you what if, if Amos is your favorite book in the Bible, uh, I don't expect a lot of hands to go up. There are a few verses from the book of James that you might be familiar with. Uh, there might be some that resonate with you a little bit more than others. But when you look at the book of Amos, uh, just to give it a little bit of context, it is written a long time ago. Okay? It was written by a young man named Amos, hence the title. And Amos was a prophet. He was somebody that God called to speak the word of God. And the irony is that he was a shepherd boy, he was a farmer from an area that's just a little south of where David, King David, had grown up in this little town of Bethlehem. So he was from Tekoa, and God called him to be a preacher to some of the northern folks who were part of the covenant community. Those folks were not in good churches. Those folks were, well, they had created some of their own religious practices, and God was aware of them and that's why God rose up a voice. And so as we look at this text today, if we're looking at Roman, or Amos chapter 3, it's the beginning of another sermon. So in the book, in the different chapters that are there, this is a second sermon. So listen to this reverently as this is the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, I better finish reading it. But this is God's word. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Then he says this is interesting verse 7. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants the prophets. The lion has roared, so who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, so who can but prophesy? Verse 9. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds, therefore, says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear so that the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch or a part of a bed, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter houses along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. O oh Lord, I pray that you will take this message, the message that you gave to Amos, this message that you gave to some, some of the covenant community that wasn't following you, I pray that you will take this message from the past and speak to us in today, in the present, Equip us for every good and perfect work that you have before ordained that we should be doing through the preaching of the word this very, moment, this very morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm telling you it's a tough passage because nobody, none of the pastors that I know really enjoy going into the Old Testament prophets. It's one of the reasons why they like to leave the Old Testament behind and say that we're New Testament Christians. But I want you to know that it's the same God that wrote those words, that the same God that wrote the New Testament words. And I want to be able to show you today that there's some parallels, that this may seem very harsh, but Paul the Apostle said some of the very same things, just in more palatable language. And why is it more palatable? Because Paul will use the words in a more generic fashion, and, and Amos is actually talking to real people. That are going to experience this. Paul's talking to real people too. But we're easily able to dismiss it. Or to be neutralized. Because Paul is nicer. Because in Romans chapter 1. Paul does some of the same thing. When he says all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. You can finish it. No not one. And when you go through. But the wages of sin is death. Oh you know that verse. It's easy to preach Romans, but it's not easy to preach Amos. Amos just seems so harsh. Same message, same God. I want you to be able to see it, and I pray that you'll be inspired today as we look, because God is serious. The lion has roared. That's the title of the message. Now, by way of introduction, I want to be able to start off by highlighting that I was wrestling yesterday with this funeral Of the Supreme Court Justice Anton Scalia. I was fascinated by it. Especially when I saw uh, the Chief Justice's son be the lead pastor or the lead priest to be able to do that. It was on national television on three or four different channels. And so if you turned in you would go right to Washington to this big church. And there were some things that really amazed me. I really was loving it when I saw another Supreme Court justice actually stand from that big chancel way up there and he started reading from the Gospel of Matthew. And there was one of those guys who makes decisions on the Supreme Court reading the New Testament, talking about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. And I was like, hey, he knows about it. He knows about it. And it made me really excited And then I watched as the church was full and I started to get jealous. Oh, how cool it would be to see everybody wanting to go to church. Even people from the candidates running to go to that funeral. How exciting it was. And there were some wonderful things stated. And yet I was saddened that there were some false things that had been crept into their service. When they started praying for the dead. When they started doing a few things that are extra biblical. Or more accurately, are non-biblical. Now, I want to challenge you that if you're coming to a church like this, we are Bible-believing people. And we want you to be like the Bereans in the New Testament that search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. And when you find that things are not matching up with Scripture, speak up. We want to do what God has bid us to do. Because the northern people that Amos is speaking to, they didn't have many people that spoke up. And they ended up leaning on their own understanding and they started fabricating their own worship services. And before long, they get a special uh, visitor. It's tough to hear a special visitor that God sends. A prophet saying iniquity is going to be judged. Now, that's where the text is. As we follow along, you're going to be able to see that, the, that in Amos, it's really interesting because he uses this analogy of the lion. And I picked on the front of the bulletin that picture of the lion roaring. This comes from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. But it's, it's a takeoff on the, uh, the passage at the end of Genesis where uh, when the blessing comes to the 12 children of Jacob, the one comes to Jacob, I mean to Jacob's son Judah, And it says, the scepter will not depart from him. There's going to be a king that comes from your loins. He is going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when this was further communicated to David, that there was going to be a a throne that would be everlasting. And one of David's sons would sit on it everlastingly. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah and it speaks of Jesus. So when you look at that picture of the lion roaring, it's not to be confused with the New Testament where the Apostle John says that there's another entity that goes about like a roaring lion seeking to devour. And that is a counterfeit. You may not have ever pictured it like that, but Satan is trying to mimic Jesus. The lion of the tribe of Judah is roaring, and Amos tells us about it. Whereas the counterfeit in the New Testament is the counterfeit one goes to devour, to consume you, to get you caught up in addictive behavior, to get you to fall into the pit, to fall prey, to sin. The lion of the tribe of Judah does not want you to stay in sin. He wants to call you away from sin. And that's what the message today is. He is exposing the darkness that is That has crept inside the covenant community. It's very, very interesting. The lion roars. In verse, uh, if you turn to chapter 1 of of Amos, you're going to see. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken unto you, O people of Israel. Um, Excuse me, in Amos 1 verses 1 and 2. The words of Amos... Who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. I just want you to emphasize, I want you to see that the big part of this sermon is that God cares enough to make a noise, to speak up, to make a difference. He doesn't come in as a squeaking mouse. He comes in as a roaring lion because he is the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. And as Psalm 2 says, he that sits in the heavens can laugh. The people have set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. But the Lord is able to roar. He is able to put things in place. So the sermon today, has, it's divided into the three parts from this, this text from Amos. The first part of the sermon is about listening to the roaring of God. Listening. The second part that we'll pick up is the logic inherent within this roaring from God. The logic that you'll find in that argument. And the third thing you're going to find is the loudness of the roar of God. The loudness of the roaring of God. And you're going to say, oh, that makes sense. Let's walk through it as you see. The first part you're going to say that is that there is a call to listen. The very first word of this sermon, he says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken. Hear it. This is an imperative. This is a command that all the audience that is in range should pay attention, should take heed. And one thing you're going to know is that when you think of the roaring of the lion... The noise is coming from the lion. It's generated from within the lion and it comes out to us. What you're going to hear throughout this whole sermon is God himself is wanting us to hear him. He is not keeping us with a famine of the revelation of God. Instead, he is communicating to us and he's doing it with excitement, with zeal, with flavor, with power. The roar from God. If you look at verse, uh, verse 1, you're going to hear that the Lord has spoken. That's one of the phrases. But if you look a little further, you're going to find that you're going to, in verse 8, he restates that by saying, the lion has roared. And then in in the next part of that verse, the Lord God has spoken. And if you go down to verse 10, you'll find that the Lord declares things. And in verse 11, thus says the Lord God. And down in verse 13, declares the Lord God. And all the way down in verse 15, it ends with declares the Lord. Now, why am I being so redundant? Do you get the point? God himself through the prophet Amos, is wanting everybody that's listening to know that God talks. He's not mute. He has something to say, and you need to listen. The wisest thing for anyone to do is to take the earplugs out and hear this word that the Lord has spoken. Listening is so powerful. There are a couple of aspects brought out in this particular passage about listening. There's the declarative and there is also the motivational. He is declaring that this is the way it should be because he's already said about nine times that God is speaking. But he's speaking about iniquities. There ought to be a reason you take notice. What is he talking about? When all the candidates are on their stump speeches, you go there. I suppose now if you've listened to one, you've listened to them all. Okay? Okay? But when the Lord speaks, you may not know what he's going to say. But in this particular passage, he says that the iniquities of people are going to be dealt with. And verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. This is what the Lord is saying. When I read this and thought I'm going to preach this, I'm like, I don't want to. But then I, I took courage from the Apostle Paul who said the same thing. Do you remember? I just was reminding you, he said, we're all sinners and we'll all fall short of the glory of God. And that's what is encouraging. This message is not meant to make you feel terrible, but it's supposed to let you know that you are terrible. But there's hope, there is hope. He introduces this about the iniquities as being your iniquities. And he, he singles out the iniquities. It's not just everybody's. That was in the first sermon in chapter 1. Do you remember we had the map up here and we went all around the land of Israel, all the different communities that had sin? He already preached that in sermon number 1. This is sermon number 2. And it focuses a little different. It focuses on election. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can take a look and you can see how he says, Hear this, the word of the Lord, against you, O people of Israel. Against the whole family of God that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now, in those couple extra phrases that I just finished with, he says you're the people of Israel. He says you're the people, that you're the family of God. And he also talks about deliverance from Egypt. I just want you to know that if you were receiving this message, you would have known... Amos's audience should have known what those phrases are linked link to. They link all the way back to Genesis 12, where God chose Abraham, the patriarch. Of all the people that were in the world at that time, he says, Abraham, I want you to do this election. And then the story with the next level of patriarchs, because Abraham had sons, okay, I'm not going to break into song that he had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. But if you look, you'll find that he had Ishmael and he had Isaac. And there was a selection that was made between the two of them. Do you remember? He, God said, I'm choosing the child of promise. And he made the child that was of the flesh, which was Hagar's son, Ishmael, was sent away. There was an election in that state. God said, Isaac is the one that will carry the seed. And then the next generation of the patriarchs, Isaac has his kids. They have a set of twins. They have Jacob and Esau. And from the two of them, even the Apostle Paul says there was an election. God loved the one and he didn't choose the other. He chose Jacob. He did not choose Esau. And the irony of Romans 9, when, he, when Paul's trying to explain it, is he chose the one that was the tricker. He chose the rotten one. God's election is really interesting, but it's exciting that God chooses people because if he didn't, we would all be lost because we're hopeless without God intervening, without him taking the first step, without him saving our soul, without him regenerating us, without him quickening us, without him roaring to grab our attention. God is the initiator, and you see that when he talks about uh, not only the families of the earth, which is the patriarchs, but he also talks about the era, the days of Moses. When that great man who was, was raised up brought the people out of the bondage of Egypt. Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments summarizes that so much. But it also incites for us a picture of Jesus. Because when he talks about the bondage that they're delivered from, you can just see the parallels. How that Moses was a type of Christ. Moses was one of his own. One of, the, uh, one of his own came to deliver them. And he came not in his own strength, but he came in the power of God. And you saw that in the Ten Commandments. When Jesus came, he was almost destroyed as a baby, just like Moses was. But Jesus came and he was despised and rejected. And people didn't want to listen to him either. He came and he did great signs as well. But Moses couldn't save his people. He did lead them out and go through the Red Sea. But Jesus was able to cover them with his red blood. You see, there was a difference. But all the people in the north are trying to hearken to these Bible stories that God has been powerful in the past and that he cares. It's very, very powerful to unfold this understanding. Now, the first point is that we are to listen to the roaring of God. He's dealing with sin. If you have sin in your life, I hope that you're paying attention. If you don't have sin, you don't need to be here today. Just get up and leave. And then we'll marvel. We'll marvel. Especially if you're married to one of them that's sinless. We might be jealous. Second point is the logic inherent. And if you'll turn down to to verse uh, 3, the text of the scripture there starts to unfold question after question after question. There's actually nine questions that are given to us. And I call this the logic that's inherent within the roaring of God. God is using, he's causing people to think and to recollect and to figure things out. So as I walk through these questions, you've heard the questions now, I'm going to walk them through, and what should happen is the same thing that happened to the original audience when they had this sermon. Do two walk together by accident? Yes or no? People just don't get together by accident. Whether you're already making this to be a marriage commitment or whether it's just walking down the street doing exercise together. When the Bible says, do two walk together unless they be agreed, it means that there had to be something that stimulated them to walk together. The second question that he asks is also another simple question. Does the lion lion roar in the forest? If it has no prey. Now think about that for a moment. You should be able to answer it. When does a lion roar? A lion does not roar to scare away its prey, the lion roars to scare the prey into the trap. Usually, if the lion sneaks up, if you've watched any of those uh, special, you know, uh, African movies where they have the lion coming around and sneaking, you know, they all crouch low until they get close enough. And they always try to pick off the, the zebra at, or at the wilder bee or that's at, at the end of the pack, right? The lion, if the lion stands up and roars, what does all the animals do? They'll flee. Everybody knew that this is, this is a... a, 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 a in a sense, a pathway that Amos is asking them to walk down. Of course, a lion doesn't roar in the forest if he doesn't have his prey. The third question, does a young lion cry out from his den? Does he make noise if he doesn't have anything? And maybe we don't know enough about lions, but the idea here is that when the lion, when the young lion, it's kind of like that teenage lion, when he captures something, he boasts of it. And he lets everybody know. So the obvious answer is is that he doesn't cry out if he doesn't have something. The fourth question, does a bird fall from the sky if he's not trapped? I don't know about you, but I've seen some beautiful birds, especially out in British Columbia when we were up there, seeing some of these things swoop down. Wow. I don't know how they do it. But birds don't fall into traps by accident. And so the logic here is that, hey, this this requires, I mean, birds fly free. And then he asks a follow-up question, and he says, does a, does a snare spring up from the ground if nothing's in it? Does the trap go off if nobody, nobody touches it? What's the answer? No, it just sits there. It, it, it takes some stimulus. So everybody that's listening to Amos is agreeing with him on all these points. They're all logical. And then he asks a little tougher one, because now it's getting in to deal with people. If a trumpet is blown in a city, what happens to the people? Now, he doesn't ask what happens. He simply says, uh, do the people become afraid? When the alarm goes off and it sounds like a fire alarm, what do you do? Do you sit still and do nothing? All of us know that when these alarms go off, which is what he's talking about, when somebody triggers the alarm, when the trumpet blows, people get nervous. They get concerned, especially, I guess, if you're in the World Trade Center now. You think about it. Then he asks another follow-up question. He says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Now you have to think. What all of this logic about the roaring of God is he is trying to tell us that he's roaring a warning. He is telling us that a disaster is around the corner. Many of us know what this is like because of the weather forecasters. They tell us that we have storms coming. They're even able to tell us that we have a storm coming a week in advance. Don't you remember that? I was surprised we didn't cancel school at that warning a week ahead. You know, the fear that it's going to be so bad. But when, the, when there is trials coming, there's some warning and God is roaring that warning to the people up north because it's really going to be bad. And then verse 7 is the point. The warning has been made. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing it to his prophet. And he says, he's revealed it to me. I'm roaring it for him. And that's why the last two questions. Since the lion of God has roared, people should be afraid. And he says, since God has spoken, the only thing I can do is prophesy. I need to tell you, thus says the Lord. It's serious business. And that's what I want to do today is to tell you this serious business. This warning is a gift from God. Don't go on in your life thinking everything is going to be the same old, same old. Some of you might actually have the other extreme, that you're looking at the elections, and you're looking at the culture, you're looking at the world, and you're saying, things aren't staying the same, they're getting worse. But there's a warning inherent in here that God is still the same God, and He still is able to do something about what's going on in your life, in your world. It's a beautiful thing. He raised up a preacher to make it known. He had a mouthpiece to say, wake up. Sin is not going to be swept under the rug. It's not going to be dismissed. Everyone that is listening is nodding. Everyone is comprehending. And now everyone is being warned that the calamity that's coming is not because God is on vacation, but because God is dealing with sin. The third point I wanted to bring up is the loudness of the roar. When you look at the remainder of this sermon from 9 to 15, uh, you can just see a few things come out. I've already highlighted the fact that five times the word, thus says the Lord, declares the Lord, uh, declares the Lord, thus says the Lord, is repeated. You get the idea that, that whoever's listening knows that God is the author. But there are, uh, there are five different things that he declares in this. The opening verses of 9 and 10, he highlights the people from Ashdod and the people from Egypt. Now, I don't know if you are familiar with the turf, but Ashdod is one of the the Philistian cities. And then you have Egypt down a little further. So it's the people of the coast that are down there. By the way, they had some bigger armies Because they were the ones that were, the Sennacherib was going to come up. And that's where Josiah died when they came up to the Valley of Jezreel. Because the Egyptians were coming, Necho was coming up to take care of things. So Amos is, is alluding, go tell those people along the coast. Go tell the people down in Egypt to come up to Samaria and sit on one of these mountains and look and observe for themselves the people of God. What an indictment. He's calling for the pagans to come to look at the Christian pagans. And what he ends up saying about this, it's really, really interesting. Uh, He says, proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see all the trouble that's going on among these northern people, among the people who are part of God's community, who have abandoned God. Number one, he says, they don't know how to do what's good. Verse 10, they don't know what's doing, what's Right. If you look at them and you look closer, what do they do? They steal from each other and they're mean to each other. Violence and robbery. They're supposed to be the Christians. Number uh, Page verse 11. Thus says the Lord, I'm going to bring up an adversary that's going to make them look defenseless. They think that they have their protections, but they don't even have their protection. They put all their confidence in this or this or this. You can even use that in any other format. When people try to cover up their sin, God is saying, I'll just pull down that stronghold. The third thing that the Lord says is in verse 12. And he uses the analogy of a shepherd rescuing somebody from the wolves or from the lions. Imagine this. The shepherd is going after a lion who has caught one of his sheep. And when he finally catches up to that lion, he gets what's left over. He pulls a couple legs, a couple of lamb chops, and he pulls off an ear. What, what does that mean? What happened to the rest of the lamb? You can figure it out. Where was he pulling it out from? The mouth of the lion. The judgment from the lion was coming down, and there was only a couple things left. And, in, and that's the picture of the northern people, because God's judgment was coming down so harsh upon them for their idolatry and their iniquity and their sin, that the only thing that was going to be left was a couple of little pieces. Hardly recognizable. Hardly recognizable. Where are the ten tribes of Israel today? Hardly recognizable. Thus says the Lord. You need to be able to fear the roaring of the lion. There's two more things he mentions in verse 13. Hear and testify, declares the Lord, that on the day that I bring this punishment, I'm going to bring down these false houses of worship. I'm going to bring down their false idols. It says that that, uh, the altars of Bethel are going to be torn down, and the horns that are there are going to be cut down, and they're they're never going to be raised back up. I don't know if you know much about the horns of this or that, but these are the false churches that were set up. God says they're not going to continue. That's kind of encouraging. False worship is not going to perpetuate. And then number five, he says in verse 15, there's no place that you're going to be able to run from the loudness of this roaring. When the Lord speaks and he says the judgment is so final, it's so thorough, that you can run to your summer house, you can run to your winter house, you can run to the palaces where they have lots of ivory, you can run everywhere. And you're not going to be able to flee. Because God says, I will not be mocked. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. I just want to finish with some encouragement. That's the message about listening, about the logic and about the loudness. Now make a couple applications. Amos, he's the mouthpiece of God. God raised him up to encourage these people, to warn them of what was coming because the Lord doesn't do anything without revealing what he's doing to his people. He is the noise of a trumpeter, uh, warning of looming disaster. He is the messenger of sadness that suffering is on the horizon. But notice, he's a messenger of hope. The warning is given to God's covenant community. To the family that God has adopted. The message is to tell them that there's even more. And this is where I wrap up. There are three different people groups that I see in the text. There's Amos. He's from the south. There are the Samaritans or the the northern ones. And then there are the people from Ashdod and Egypt, the outsiders. Which one do you identify with? The outsiders didn't even know God. In fact, he says, summon them over to come and watch. The northerners were the people that knew about God but had abandoned God. They're the ones that started to lean on their own understanding and created their own forms of worship and said, we want to do it the way we want to do it and we want to have fun when we go to our places. And so they created some cool devices and stuff. They even included sex in some of their stuff. It's, God wasn't pleased. And then you have Amos all alone. Amos is standing up saying, judgment's coming. But Amos knows That even his lower, the people are going to go through 70 years of exile. But I wanted you to understand, God has to punish sin. Exodus 34, 7. He can by no means clear the guilty. But if you're a part of the people of God from that southern part, with the Judah people, yes, there's going to be 70 years of exile, but you're going to be brought back. You're not going to be just brought back as a lamb chop and an ear. He's going to bring back the Lamb of God Who will take away the sins of the world? Jesus. This message is a message to bring fear of God into them. And it's a message that should bring the fear of God to us. I told you I was over in British Columbia and I got to meet a lot of people. You know, one thing that almost everybody I talked to was lacking was a fear of God. Almost everybody I met told me that they weren't sinners told me they were good. Almost everybody that I met didn't need a Savior. The one gal I talked to didn't even need heaven. I'm telling you that Amos is a messenger of hope because he says that God cares. If you have sin in your life, repent. If you look at the back page of the bulletin, we're going to have communion for the next four weeks leading up to the Lord's Supper. I mean, the Lord's Supper, which is when it was instituted on, on Ash, not Ash Wednesday, but on Monday, Thursday. During these four weeks, I'm going to challenge you to see if there be any wicked way in your heart. Deal with it. Confess it. The first words of Jesus' sermon when he, after his ordination, do you remember the first word? It starts with an R. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. It's near, because the king is here. Repent. I'll tell you, Paul said it so well. There is none righteous, no, not one. But there is a righteousness that's available from God that you can't get. And the way that it is applied to you is by imputation. But it is brought into your world when you see the cross and you see how Jesus was the sinless one. He was the one who didn't have to fear the roaring lion. He, the Lamb of God, gave up his life. Just like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the lion goes to the stone table and gives his life. Does this make sense to you? That Jesus is not going about to devour you. He's going about to save you. To save sinners from their iniquity. Oh Lord, I pray today that you would help us not to feel good about our sin, but to see the sobriety. May the roaring of our God cause